This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 701. This week, we welcome Ken Siders, Senior Environmental Consultant at ETA Environmental. We're going to look at a a cautionary structural drying tale that has a lot of lessons for everybody, consultants, contractors, and all. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. at TSI.com. Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Kettering, Ohio, who was first to identify President Dwight Eisenhower as the U.S. president who created the agency within the U.S. Department of Defense responsible for developing emerging, uh, emerging technologies for use by the military. The IEQ trivia question for today, June 2, 2023, has been sponsored by TSR. Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the term defined as follows, a dimensionless parameter that correlates with the proportion of water available for biological or chemical reactions and is related to the energy status of the water molecules in a given system. Back to you, Joe. All right. Today's guest, Ken Siders, is the Senior Environmental Consultant for ETA Environmental. He's got over 20 years in building science and restoration fields. He's a teacher and a published author, and his expertise includes mold, radon, Chinese drywall, meth lab cleanup, lead, asbestos, and many more types. Ken's been around the block. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, good Great afternoon. to have you. Thank Great you Great to much. have you, everybody. Um, hey, can you, you have an interesting background, like, and then 
what you're doing now is very interesting for folks too. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then a little bit about what your company does today? Sure. So uh, many years ago, I was in the construction industry. I owned a construction company. We did residential and commercial construction. And uh, as we all know, those things hit a low. So during uh, one of the construction busts, I had a friend of mine tell me, Ken, mold is the next asbestos. This, and I just kind of laughed, but this gentleman uh, was one of those fellows that everything he touched turned to gold. So I took his advice and I got involved in the industry years ago. Uh, started out as a mold assessor before there was such a thing in the state of Florida. And then eventually ended up getting grandfathered after the licensure came into place. Uh, I was encouraged by a good friend of mine, Ken Larson, to join the RIA. I uh, hadn't even heard of it, been in the business for years. And uh, that's when I really began to uh, meet people like yourselves and some of the other people that have helped me along the way that have uh, mentored and challenged me and really helped me improve uh, being a good servant to the industry. And what what does your current work look like? What kind of jobs are you doing now? So we focus mainly on commercial jobs, uh, large loss, and uh, we have a bit of a different bent on how uh, we do it than we used to. We consider the building as a whole. So uh, when I say that, uh, some people just consider holes in the building. I don't think that's proper. Uh, there is a covered loss issue that happens every time. We're not PAs. We don't act like them, but we are building investigators. So we should know where the storm created openings, whether they are missing caskets or actually holes are. We should be able to trace that down to the areas that have been uh, affected and write an effective protocol for cleanup and remediation of said contamination. And you, you're basically a consultant. What, what kind of customers do you work with? Do you work with PAs or building owners or both? So we work with PAs and law firms uh, generally. We do work directly for the asset owners uh, sometimes. And uh, we've had great success in that. We try to keep our clientele at a level, uh, put it this way, we do mom and pops, but that's not where we feel we can be the most helpful. Uh, with our uh, expertise and the size of our company, we feel that we're most helpful after an event helping large loss clients. Uh, we work a lot with churches and nonprofits, helping them get back on their feet so that they can serve the community. And, and the project we wanted to talk about today, Cliff saw you do a presentation. I think it was done at the uh, winter camp, maybe. And uh, you did a presentation on a nice size project and we called this a cautionary structural drying tail it tell us a little bit about exactly what you were doing there what your role was i guess you were working for the building owner or for the insurance company working for the asset owner in this case uh, you're referring to word of life church yes. which uh, we we have uh we've commissioned a, a self-commissioned if you will a study on this particular building it's such an unusual project in that the the roof itself was a mod bit over a Miller deck. So uh, I'll have a picture of that if you, if you want to show it. If the next one, sure, sure what that is. There's a, a shot of the actual roof. So what you're looking at there, there is, is uh, what you're looking at there is the foam covering that was put over the mod bit roof after it failed many years ago. So there's a mod bit, which this is an example of what that is. It's a, a Miller deck, a steel deck, 
with uh, the polysyrenate roof insulation and the perlite and the three plies and eventually the pea gravel over the asphalt. That's what is there now. When that roof failed, the current asset owner at that time decided to put a three inch or three and a half inch foam roof over it with a Simtex coating. So that's the roof assembly that we were dealing with. The problem that we found was that that roof assembly had been badly damaged by flying debris from the neighborhood. There were 178 penetrations to this foam roof through the Syntex, and the foam itself is absorptive. So we found ourselves in a unique situation. We have a mod bit room uh, roof covered with foam and Syntex that is now completely, or at least generally, soaked with water. So the very best solution to that, of course, would be tear the roof off and put a new roof on. Um, not to be insensitive, but I think we all know that uh, these large losses that insurance companies uh, can sometimes drag their feet on that sort of thing. And uh, that's where we found ourselves. So we had to come up with a creative solution to get the building dry on the inside. Um, if you want to skip ahead a little bit, I'll show you. Uh, this is uh, what it looks like when they apply roof uh, foam over a roof. This is the actual project. This is just to show how it's done. Ken, is that open cell? So that is open oh, cell. Okay. Yeah, it's open. It's open cell. Hey, so, Ken, I, yes. Well, I, I guess one question too. You know, you, you said that um, you were concerned about getting water out of the building. Um, were any of the surfaces that were affected, you know, within the roof uh, prone to mold growth? Hmm. So underneath the Miller deck, uh, when we did our above the, the ceiling inspection, we did find microbial growth, and we also found water that tested out as Category 2-3. So the actual exterior of the, of the surface didn't present any mold growth. It's hard to tell what's going on underneath that Simtex uh, now that the roof has been temporarily patched, though. Thanks. Let's take a look at this. Go one more, I think, John. So there you go, the First picture you showed was the picture of the roof prior to patching. This is the picture of the roof after temporarily patching. So here we see all the penetrations that went through this. The interesting thing about this is that foam began to absorb water. If you can go to the next, which is the colorful slide. Hey, Ken, before you do, why sure. is that one area look? Looks like they scraped. Did they scrape the, uh, the foam off there? No, uh, that's a prior patch. And I'm okay. not sure what they rolled it with, but it collected uh, dirt and debris more than the balance of the patching. Gotcha. Next. Let's go to the next one, John. Okay. Is this so, what you were looking for? There we go. Yeah. So if, if you could overlay this, which you can't at this point, but if you could overlay this over that picture, you would find out that the red areas, which are uh, 100% saturated, saturated, uh, match up with the predominance of the penetrations. Why is that important? Uh, this was done with a Tramex Roofmaster so that we could get an idea where the saturation was in the actual foam, which, of course, we would hope would match below with the leakage. It doesn't always, as we know, water seeks its own level. But when you take a 3D image, uh, for example, a dollhouse in a Matterport, and you put it under this and then blur this out a little bit, you'll find that the predominance of the water came in from the, the storm-created openings. Why are we doing this? We want to be able to prove from stem to stern what's happening on this project. Uh, by the and way, this we estimated... Hurricane. Go ahead. Her, 
Hurricane Ian, we yeah. estimated that there were over 30,000 gallons of water entrained in this roof system. Wow. And what's, what seems odd to me here, Ken, is you've got areas with zero, I don't know if that's zero percent or zero on a relative scale, um, and then you got areas right next to it that are, you know, 40, 80, 100. Um, is that common? Well, that's a good question. Um, we've never done this particular thing before. We made it part of our study because we thought it would be important to see the saturation levels of a uh, Simtex-coated foam roof over a mod bit. Basically, it's a big uh, absorptive blanket over a semi-permeable surface. So to answer your question, I don't know if it's common. I do know that those are approximately 10 square foot areas, and it's on a relative scale. So what I can tell you, though, is it is common in this instance to see the red, which is uh, represented as 100, right below the areas that are punctured. Okay, that makes sense. It's it's interesting. Cliff, do you have any follow-ups on this? Not on that. No. I'm, just, I'm just curious, uh, Ken, before we go any further, how common are these roof I don't know what we call renovations, I guess, where they put this foam down and then a covering over it. Well, to be fair, I'm not a roofer, so I don't know how common it is. I know it's been around a very long time. Um, years ago when I was in construction, I remodeled a building that had the same thing done to it. So to my knowledge, it's been around for 30 years, probably more. Um, it's a pretty good system when applied properly and maintained. Uh, this is a shot of us standing on a roof. Uh, there's the darkened area that you saw. And then the next shot is just simply an IR shot. Get an idea of what the roof looks like um, in, the same, in the same vantage. Joe, it would probably be more of a southern method because, uh, you, you know, you're adding the weight of additional roofing products. And up in the, the north, we would then have a snow load that could theoretically go on top of that that might not be able to handle it. But it would seem that, uh, you know, the weight of the additional roof would probably be less than snow, I would think, that we get. Yeah, I would think so. It's just I've seen them actually rarely here up north, but once in a while coated with what looks like a uh, closed cell phone. And there's no covering over it, which is really unusual, I think. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I just... I know I've run into that before. Have you ever seen that, Ken? Yeah, it's usually a Simtex type coating that's on it. Uh, the, the issue with the foam is that it's not, uh, it's not uh, well, it is subject to UV ray degradation. So that's the issue with the foam. They usually coat it with something, even if it's just a UV ray coating. And this is, when you say coating, is it like a spray applied coating that, that they put over this? It is. It's very much, uh, if you think of uh, an airless paint sprayer, it's done yes. with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. All right. Um, let's go to that IR th image again, John. <laughs> I go back one to that IR image. I just want to see what we're showing here. Ken? So uh, right now we're, we're looking um, towards, let's see, that would be probably unit 15. 14 and 15 of the roof mounts. Those are the uh, HVCs. And then we're just looking at a standard IR picture. Uh, we don't use this as if it's the tool in the toolbox. It's just one of them to give us an idea what the roof likes as it looks like as it heats up. Interesting. Um, Ken, 
Well, let's go to the next one first, John. Then I want to talk a little bit about how you dried this building out. This I found very interesting earlier when we talked, Ken. Tell our audience a little bit about what this graphic shows. So this is uh, showing the moisture content using a Protimeter Pro in the south center wall in the foyer, which was an area that had uh, a lot of leaks. So our thought was, as the roof gets patched, which as you notice, there were patches in that one area, the water has to go somewhere. So the day after the roof was temporarily patched, we had a nice hot Florida sunny day. And you'll notice uh, that day correlates with the spike in the moisture content, which is it's kind of hard to see, but it's about day 10 or day eight where we spiked. So as we began to map this, what we noticed is that although we had a downward decline in the moisture content in this particular test area, it always correlated with the roof temperature. So that water was being forced through vapor pressure down through the Miller deck, down into the building assembly. The only other way to get the water out would have been to take the roof off, which, of course, for reasons we've already stated, was not practical. So as we track the temperature and we track the moisture content of the actual product that was on the wall, we found that they correlated. Then you notice there at the very end on the very right, there was a huge spike. Um, I was telling you this story earlier. Uh, there was a meeting going on in this particular building, and I, uh, the gentleman that was in charge came, and I happened to be on site, and got me and said, we've got a real problem. I'll go into the meeting room, and it looked like someone had turned a, an actual water hose on. Uh, it was coming out about an inch round, and it was just, it was a lot of water. Well, what had happened is all that water had finally found a way to get through the Miller deck uh, in a way that broke through. That, that went on for quite a while. So that spike is indicative of those sort of things. And what? In drying this, did you go in and um, I know you were consulting on on the project. You weren't doing the actual drying. Is that accurate? That is accurate, yes. Did you go in and and assist the contractor in finding ways to kind of release that water? I mean, did you drill holes through the deck? How did you do that? So, no, we didn't drill holes to the deck. Um, I did work uh, with the contractor. Uh, as a representative to the owner, uh, the asset owner. And uh, we tried to do some inventive things when it came to drying the building out without losing the building. Um, and I won't go into all the different things, but there's more than one way to skin a cat. And when you know you have an issue in one area, best to concentrate there. I mean, what's our goal at the end of the day? We want to get this back to a dry standard. And with a moving target and the fact that you know that's all that water is up there, and by the way, I didn't mention, but walking on that roof was a little scary. You can well huh. imagine with that kind of poundage, we had some real concerns for the structure. But uh, yes, we did do some very inventive things to try to get that moisture out of there. And can you give me some examples on how you got it out? Sure. So there were some areas that seemed like they were a constant leak. Uh, we opened those areas and uh, piped dry, hot air into those areas so that we could actually go right to the source. Um, we, uh, removed certain, uh, areas in the ceiling tiles to give more air to the overhead. We found and repaired damage to the HVAC system, which by the way, had been running the whole time. So there was no worry of cross-contamination. We knew that had happened. So, uh, rerouted some of that to give better airflow. We were just using everything that was within our reach and ability in the middle of a storm to save the building from uh, going bad, if you know what I mean. Hey, hey, Ken, I, I got a, just a crazy, crazy idea that I just had. And, and right. I, I'm wondering what would have happened. 
you knew that you had these 80 penetrations that were in the that were in the roof and i wonder what would have happened if you would have put high pressure air into those intrusions whether that would have not forced the water down you know through the building and uh you know save drying time because you know if that would have maybe helped you know remove it from the building or help spread it around or or whatever just crazy thought i don't know cliff that's a that's a good thought um i love thinking out of the box on these we certainly didn't do that uh we did consider leaving some of the areas open so that we wouldn't pressurize the roof but that wasn't really uh, an option at the time it was raining every day and so we were very concerned with the weight of the water and the fact that we hadn't stopped the leak so we opted just to stop it and let it uh, filter through the building naturally but i understand what you're saying so what other types of drying did you set up in here? I would imagine you used dehumidification, air movement. Um, can you go over that a little bit? Sure. So we did all of the above, including desiccants. And so um, we watched the, uh, the delta on the desiccants very closely. We didn't want to overheat the building. Uh, we didn't want to under dry the building. So we did that for a period of, uh, gosh, I forget how long it was now, but uh, we documented it every day to watch as the uh, moisture levels fell, not only in the ambient air, but in the building products. And when we came to a point where we felt like it was able to be stabilized with the existing air conditioning system, we, uh, at, under Ada's advice, we stopped all the dehumidification process. Cliff, let me let, turn it over to you for a minute. This okay. was Fort Myers, so geographically, we're in a hot, humid climate. Go ahead. Right. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the one thing that, that maybe the, the audience would really like to, to know, Ken, is how you made the calculation to determine how much water, you know, was in the building. Because I think that that's creative and, and, and kind of explain maybe how, you know, people could do that. Because that's probably something that's not commonly thought about, you know, they know there's a lot of water there, but people don't actually think about it. And, you know, in this situation, well, you know, you know, there's a little bit of water spread over 30,000 square feet, you know, how much could it be? I I think the answer was very, very surprising. So, uh, you know, if you could perhaps explain how, you know, you kind of did that calculation. Sure. Uh, So first of all, let's establish that it's, it's a calculated guess. So we all know that. Right. So uh, we went to the manufacturer of the phone and found a white paper on its absorptive qualities and how much one cubic foot of that foam would absorb at 100%. So using that calculation and the fact that the roof was a mean three and a half inches thick, we just did the calculation and assigned a value to each 10 square feet, which you saw in the colored gotcha. uh, roof. Gotcha. And so assigning that value, we tried to err on the side of uh, caution. Right. And not to not say that uh, even the 40% squares, you know, we tried to err on the side, not to say there was more water than there was. And when we got done with our calculations, which, as you can imagine, we did four or five times. We were just surprised. We kept thinking there must be a mistake, but apparently there was not. Well, Ken, did you, did you also 
evaluate how much moisture, how much water would be removed by the processes you used, and did that come up approximately equal? So, well, you, when we were using LGRs, we did uh, document the amount of water they pulled out, and so uh, that's important. As you know, using a desiccant, that's not really possible. So there was no way to accurately track in and out. What I can tell you is that uh, we only used LGRs for the time that we thought we needed them. Mm-hmm. And then we switched to Deskin because it's more, a much more effective system. So now, go ahead. Uh, when you say the time you needed them, is that a, a matter of days or weeks? Uh, well, I think, as I recall, it was about a week or so. Okay. Uh, it's been a little while. I don't remember this one. You know how, how it is. You've got a lot of these projects going at once. But um, what I do know is that we were pulling in almost uh, factory specs of water out every day. So, uh, you know, those things are rated in a perfect world, which uh, we don't live in the perfect world, but we were getting close to factory specs from the LGRs. Once that started to slow down, we switched over to the deskins. Gotcha. And how's the cooperation been from the insurance company? You're talking about a lot of money putting in, you know, desiccant dehumidifiers for maybe a week um how's the insurance company been handling that so far it's been dicey um they sent some representatives out i'll be real careful what i say that in in my opinion were less than qualified to assess the situation and instructed the uh the asset owner to have everything turned off it was just fine so i had begun the actual tracking at that time and so uh, that was complied with. Everything was shut off and I continued to track. So within two days, the, the moisture content began to spike uh, in all the uh, moisture laden materials. And of course, my GPP and uh, RH went up considerably. So I made the call to uh, reinstitute the drying procedure um, for two reasons. First of all, um, I'm qualified to do that. I'm a certified commercial drying specialist. Secondly, I didn't feel like they were qualified. So our responsibility is to the asset owner, not to the insurance company. Not saying they're not part of the wheel, just saying that they set it at a desk miles away and sometimes send people that are less than qualified to make important decisions. Well, especially after these catastrophic events like Hurricane Ian, you know, you you don't know who you're going to get down there. Um, is this a pretty common carrier in, in Florida? Um, yeah, we'll call them common carrier. Okay. <laughs> Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Um, you know, before you, um, you know, did the drawing, um, did you have to do any extraction, you know, in, inside the building or were there any opportunities to do any, you know, bulk moisture removals? Cause it's, you know, it's a lot easier to, to suck it out. Than it is to you know, to dry it out. Any opportunities sure. with that? Of course, you're right about that, Cliff. So uh, when we showed up, there were garbage cans uh, and different things positioned around the building to catch the water that was falling off of the ceilings. Keep in mind, it's a two-story building, so there wasn't a lot of liquid water on the floor. Although some of the carpets you know had uh, been wetted, and remember, I said all the ACs that were operational, a lot of them weren't. We're still running. So we didn't show up, you know, directly after the storm days after. And so uh, the customer didn't realize the magnitude of the problem that they had. 
And uh, fortunately for us and for them, we got to be involved in that to begin the demitigation and really stabilization phase of the whole project. How many days after the loss did, did you get in there? I'm thinking it's uh, about three weeks, but you know how it is in a storm, Cliff. I don't really remember exactly. Every day right. blends into the next. Right. No, a lot of stuff can happen really in, in three days, you know, not and not good stuff either. So I yeah. think they're probably pretty lucky or at least, you know, with the amount of moisture in the building that they didn't have, you know, bloom. And, uh, you know, we get that a lot up north in, in schools, like in order to save energy, they, you know, they shut the HVAC systems off over the summer and, uh, you know, they end up, you know, we get the dog days of uh, August and September. And in those two or three weeks, you know, we end up getting mold blooms and, it's common in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, Ohio. And, you know, they, they, if they just ran the equipment, um, did, did you find a lot of evidence of, of moisture hitting dew point, you know, with, with, within the building, you know, with, with condensation and stuff, you know, during, I guess, before you got there and then, you know, during the drying process? Well, there was so much water that entered the building. It's, it was hard to tell where it came from. I mean, we had uh, ceiling tiles that disintegrated and just fell out of the track. So, I mean, that's the kind of water that was coming in. Um, I'm sure that there was some dew point going on. Uh, I don't think that they were without power all that long. So uh, it's a fairly good sized building. So my assumption is before we got there that, that their operational ACs were at least putting a dent in that problem. You know, churches, um, you know, I, I'm sure that they wanted to get back in business, you know, and, you know, their businesses, you know, serving the community and, you know, providing, uh, you know, opportunities, you know, for prayer, et cetera. So um, were they able to hold any services, you know, during the drying process or um, anything like that? So uh, the, the client opted to continue to use the facility on a limited basis. And uh, during the actual service time, uh, the drying process was temporarily shut down, uh, not for the whole building, just for the areas they were in. And then uh, at that point, you know, we cranked it back up. So the, the issue, and Cliff, it's not just with this church. The issue with a lot of these nonprofits is, in a storm, is that they're a lifeline to the community. This particular church is one of the larger food banks. So, you know, you're going to have your your disadvantaged families generally that come here, but in a storm, a lot of us become disadvantaged. Everybody, right? Yeah. And so uh, this is a well-known uh, area with a big heart and they were helping the community at large with their food reserves. And the thought of the whole place just shutting down just was untenable. So um, yes, they used it on a temporary and uh, selective basis. All right, we're going to stop for a minute, thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with Ken Siders talking about a uh, kind of unique project, uh, drying cautionary structural drying tail, we called it. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. 
Our association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World. AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's Multidisciplinary Membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee, AEML. INC.com. Particles Plus. Feature rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Tramex Meters. Developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. HealthyIndoors.com All right, we're back with Ken Siders, Senior Environmental Consultant for ETA Environmental. Ken, I'm trying to picture the interior of this building. So uh, it sounds like they had uh, ceiling tile for most of the ceiling. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And no drywall up there. That's correct. So the ceiling tile, did it all have to come out? Well, I guess the question is, will it all have to come out? Um, Will it all, yes. Yeah. So most of it, yes. Most of it is water damaged, whether it's uh, water damaged from actual liquid water or, as you can imagine, the humidity between the drop ceiling and the Miller deck was pretty high. So there's quite a bit of humidity damage to the tiles, too. All right. Now, next, you've got, I assume, drywall walls throughout this building. And they are getting, some of them are getting wet, some of them are not getting wet. So it it seems like your your role there was really important. Um, You're working for the owner, I assume. And are you going in on a day or were you going in on a daily basis and checking these walls or were you kind of waiting to see what popped up? Absolutely a daily basis. We were on a tear to collect as much data as we could using this as a case study to show what happens in these unusual situations. So on a daily basis for several months, we took readings, uh, which included temperature, GPP, RH, moisture content using uh, Protimeter Pro and, uh, also using Tramex moisture meters in some of the areas for the concrete situations. Uh, This building itself originally was a theater with four uh, big theaters in it and uh, eventually was purchased by a telemarketing company. So there's another remodel 
and then finally purchased by the church that owns it now. So it had been through quite a few remodels and resets, but the predominance of the interior walls were block, I'm guessing, for sound absorption at some point. Uh, and then often they had sleepers on them with sheetrock uh, attached to that. And when you came in, I mean, you're three weeks later, was there already mold growing in some of these areas? So, no, I didn't see a lot of mold growing. Um, I mean, there's always going to be some mold. As we know, we're in Florida, so I'm not saying that we're a fungal-free environment. But uh, we didn't uh, we didn't see a predominance of mold growing. What we did find, though, is that a lot of contaminated water, E. coli, coliform, you name it, it was there, sewer indicators, and uh, the smell uh, it was indicative of of really putrid water too. So this is all coming from the top down. There were no sewer backups, no line breaks. And so did you have to remove a lot of drywall that, that had been hit by this, you know, putrid water, as you say? So, well, there's a good question. So now we're in a stabilization phase over a period of time where the, uh, we'll say the discussions are going on with the insurance company. And so eventually a stabilization phase of it, continues is going to turn into drying, uh, whether you mean to or not. So as the air conditioners took over, as we said earlier, um, this stuff has not been removed. Um, predominantly has not been removed. Uh, the church is in a wait and see, just waiting on the insurance company. Are they dealing with odors? I mean, it seems to me like this has got to be, you've got to be having some odor issues. We did it first. But as the uh, as the humidity dropped, uh, the odor issues began to go away. So, you know, uh, you and I talked one time about uh, spilling a category one glass of water on a carpet and wringing it out back into the glass. Would you drink it? Well, of course, the answer is no. And I think that's what's happened here with some of these uh, carpet tiles and things like that. You know, they've gotten wet. They begin to present odors. And then as the humidity went away, so did the actual um, odor itself. And what about the, um, looked like you had a bunch of rooftop units there for the mechanical system. Uh, I couldn't, I didn't count how many, but I would imagine there's got to be at least 20 of them up there, maybe more. Are you going to be recommending any cleaning of those units as well? So in our report, um, in the reports that we make for a commercial project, we also have a partner in air conditioning that comes in and does a report on the actual system itself. So why is that? Well, Joe, it's because we believe that the air conditioning system is an integral part of the building. It can't be ignored. It can't be treated as a separate issue. Uh, Contaminated or unoperative systems are going to continue to negatively affect the interior environment. So to answer your question, quite a few of them were not working properly. And uh, what ended up happening is the contractor put a rooftop unit uh, to replace one of the main units there and then put another unit in the back and piped it in so that we'd have adequate air to be able to keep the building conditioned. And what about the ones that were running during this whole time? You said they were able to keep a lot of things running. Are are you going to have them cleaned eventually? So cleaned and or replaced. Um, It's always a cost benefit that you want to present to the insurance company for your client. So some of these things are, are, they're old and bottom line, and they're operating inefficiently. The doors were blown off. The access panels were blown off on almost every unit. So they've been exposed to salt water and things like that. So 
the question is, is there a usable life left in them? Um, that's going to be something for the PA, the attorneys and the insurance and the asset owner to determine. But what we've determined is they had become contaminated and that, uh, that they had become damaged. And we presented that as just empirical evidence. You know, another thing I could see being a uh, contentious point, even though you said you didn't find much mold. I would imagine if you did and when you do, because I, there's got to be mold there, um, there will be the decades-old argument about whether this was pre-existing mold growth or something that came from this loss. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I've, <laughs> I have a mantra for that. Well, it's here now. It's your job to prove it wasn't here before, not mine. My gotcha. job is to prove that it's here. And it doesn't matter to me whether it was here before or whether it came from this. Okay. I mean, it, it, it matters in the, in the long run. I'm not saying I don't care, but what I'm saying is I can't see it through the crystal ball any more than the other side can. What I can do is present evidence to say that it is here now. And so, uh, you know, we did have a storm and there are storm created openings and that is secondary damage. So um, I've done my job. Now, I, I hear a lot from people like John Lapoter, um, others that work in the Florida area. Ken, you mentioned uh, Ken before. Uh, talking about how contractors, some contractors in Florida are using the fact that it's possibly Category 3 water to try and do, I guess, more than what you would normally, you know, do, remove more things, uh, dry more things, disinfect more things. Do you see that occurring on this project or others that you're working on? Well, I can, first of all, let me answer the this project. The answer is no on this project. Um, not saying there isn't that presence. What I'm saying is that things that should be cleaned and disinfected will be, things that don't have to be won't be. Uh, we have a pretty strong hand in that. That's why the asset owner hired us. And uh, not saying that we are the wheel, but we're a pretty good size spoke in the wheel. So there's the answer to that. In regards to people using category two or three to do, I believe you said more work than normal or necessary. Um, I would just say this. If you have proof that it's category two or three water, and that's not just, it's not just ATP, it's not just smell. You know, there are five things in the 500 that you could use to prove this. If you have proof of it, and it's there, then you should treat it accordingly, regardless of what anyone else says, whether they believe it's true or not. Uh, one of the things we do is we back up our on-site testing with lab testing. So if it's category two, three water, then we're going to write it that way. And absorptive materials that come in contact with category two or three water should be with the owner asset, asset owner's permission, they should be disposed of. They can't be properly cleaned. And so the contention in my mind comes from the people who have to open their wallet and pay for it under the policy. I don't think that there's any uh, negative discussion about whether contaminated items should remain, whether it's the owner or the remediator. I think the idea is, is it contaminated? Because that's where they can put a stranglehold. And if it is, what what should we do to treat it? So uh, that's a long answer for a short question. Uh, no, it's a, it's a good answer. And it's also important because um, you're just reporting the facts as you find them. You're not saying that the insurance company should pay for X, Y, or Z. You're just reporting what you found. That's exactly right. Uh, one of the things I like to say 
when, uh, you know, when I'm with an adjuster and, you know, sometimes you have disagreements with adjusters, I just say, well, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm just here to quote the 500. If you want to argue with the 500 peer reviewed by quite a few people, that's up to you. I'm just here to state the facts. Gotcha. Cliff, let me turn it back to you. Um, okay. Uh, what about corrosion? Um, you know, uh, in the building, uh, I, I think it could have come from a couple of different places. You know, I'm not sure how much salt water may have been mixed in with the water that was, you know, that, that, that came into the building and probably some of the metals that were in the building may not have been installed with the anticipation that they were going to be wet. So I'm just wondering whether or not, uh, you know, some of these metals got, uh, you know, corroding, whether there's any rust or anything like that. Um, you know, is, is, could you comment on that? That's a great question. Um, we do have some concerns about the Miller deck attachments. Uh, the longer that this uh, roof sets in its current condition, more concerns we have that the attachment uh, devices, which are, you know, screws for the most part, right. have become, they become oxidized. Now, this goes back to Joe's question. Were they oxidized before or are they oxidized now? I, the answer is, I don't know. What I do know is, what I do know is that they're oxidized now. Right. And there was and so, 30,000 gallons of water, right? Yeah. Right. So what I'm sure of is that uh, the longer that that sits there, the more concerned that'll be. So Cliff, uh, when the day comes that they rip this roof, I'll put another one on there. If the heads of those fasteners are oxidized beyond the manufacturer's recommendations, you know, I'm, I'm no roof expert, but um, I'm thinking there's a new Miller deck involved too. Uh, um, let's see. You know, as far as, as far as, you know, the, the one comment that you said kind of, you know, that you said that um, you were there to quote the standard and you know, sometimes the standard's not right. I agree. And, and sometimes it's not technically, uh, you know, correct. And it would seem to me that, you know, it said that there were five different ways that you could tell, you know, whether or not the, uh, you know, the water was, I guess, category three or whatever. And I'm trying to have, I'm trying to think of five different ways and, I'm really not coming up with five different ways. It would just seem that, you know, the only way you're going to be able to determine that is, you know, through, through a lab test. And other than that, um, I'm not, I'm really not sure how one would determine it. Well, well let's talk about that. So um, do you believe that E. coli and coliform have to be present to make it category two, three? Yes. So, so, okay, no, I, no, I'm going to tell you what I think. Okay. 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 All right. So, what I, okay, what I think is that fresh water does not become a category three water over time. Okay. I, I do not believe uh, that, that, that that happens. So, in terms of, you know, category three, you know, normally I think we're looking for E. coli and, and there are other people that, you know, they're going to look for asbestos and and, and 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 so on and so forth. But, you know, I don't think asbestos is necessarily water soluble. So I think no. that's a, I think that's a, you know, it's a mineral. So I think that's a whole other issue. But 
Um, you know, in, in terms of using ATP for that, and I'm not sure whether the standard says that and, you know, whether that was, you know, whether you meant to use ATP or not. I mean, ATP is going to give us a number. And uh, I'll never forget uh, my one and only really serious experimentation uh, with ATP. And this is kind of when it, when it first came out. And uh, someone was trying to sell me on the idea of using uh, ATP. And what I did is I took uh, the meter that they sent me and I took uh, a swab and I dipped the swab into an iodine-based disinfectant because that's all I happened to have at that particular. And I ended up with the highest level, the highest <laughs> It just it just penned out the, the machine. And at that particular point, I realized that uh, I don't think there's any uh, living substance in iodine, right? And no. you know, so it, there had to be some sort of you know some sort of reaction with it. But you know, I think you get a number. And I I, I, I think that just getting a number, I don't know. Yeah. I, I want a lot more information, you know, with just, sure. with just the number. So, well, let's talk about uh, your experiment just for a moment. So luciferin is the active ingredient right. that's used in, in um, these ultra snaps or whatever the case may be, whichever right. brand you're using. Right. So I think what's happened is that you excited the luciferin with the iodine molecule. That's one thing. One of the things that I'm concerned about when I'm using ATPs, which I do, is that I'm not uh, going over a surface that's been cleaned with some sort of an oxidizing or any sort of chemically active cleaner. So I think that you, you, it was a good experiment, Cliff. I think that you've proved that there are there are ways that ATP are not the whole toolbox, which I've always said. It's simply a tool in the toolbox in a way that you don't take, uh, you know, you don't take, uh, let's just say, GPP readings with a moisture meter. You know, they both have their own uh, uses. So ATP and then uh, E. coli and coliform. So I think we started this question with, do you believe that it has to have E. coli and coliform to be uh, category three? So right. I, I have an example, and I'll just present it to you and ask you what you think. So there was a hotel. There is a hotel in, in uh, Houston, a 10-story hotel that was in the ice storm. And then after the ice storm, there was another storm and that storm ripped some roof off. And so there was that issue. And then subsequently a month or so later, uh, the seventh floor caught on fire. So we've got a really complex issue going on with this building, as you can imagine. Well, I was called back in by the asset owner to look at the water that came out of the sprinkler systems. And I know this is a point of contention with a lot of people. So I sampled the water. I got the fire department there, turned the alarm off, do all the proper things. I got a sample of the water sent it to a lab, and the sample had no E. coli, no coliform, but it did have anaerobic uh, metal-eating bacteria, a lot of it. I mean, a bunch of it, right? The system hadn't right. been flushed in years. So I guess the question is, Category 1 water, which I went to the water department in that city and got their definition of what was potable, so that's what they right. believe Category 1 water is, Compared to this one, which had a preponderance of anaerobic bacteria in it, what category was it? Well, I would propose it wasn't category one, because it's certainly not potable. 
Agreed. So was it maybe category two? I don't know because I'm not sure what I, I think it would are. probably be category four because I think what happens is it's probably in a category by itself. Um, and that's probably how I would have you know tried to you know to qualify because I think it, it is unique and different. And you know, th- there's two types of those fire suppression systems. There are some that are wet all the time, and there's others that have a compressor that right. holds that water pressure back. So if you you know if you have a wet system, uh, I think they're supposed to put certain chemistry in that system to prevent corrosion and so on and so forth. I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but the, you know it's kind of like a boiler or whatever. I suspect that they right. have you know chemistry that you know that they put in there. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I probably would. I, I I wouldn't put it in any of the other common categories because I think metal eating bacteria is something that um, you know isn't commonly looked for. But I think what happened was. That, you know, going back to this category three thing, I think that the original definition was that it was, you know, it started out, you know, it was water, you know, that contained fecal matter and, you know, specifically fecal matter. And, you know, that they said urine wasn't because a lot of, a lot of urine is, is sterile actually, right. uh, you know, when it, when it comes out of the body. So I think that's kind of where it started. And then I think all these other things got, added to it, but it would seem to me that metal eating bacteria, anaerobic, or, you know, uh, it's a, it's a bacteria that can live, you know, without oxygen that destroys metal. Metal's the big risk, you know, not necessarily humans. Again, I wouldn't want to eat it or drink it, but um, again, I'm not sure that it, that it does pose, uh, you know, a threat to, you know, to human body without knowing exactly what the species is. That's a good point. I mean, uh, and let's don't forget that in this process, oxidization happens. So the water itself is full of iron too. Right. So I, I would postulate that, that anytime you have a preponderance of a single species like that, and it's, it was in very high concentrations that it would definitely fall within the may cause harm to humans for consumption categories so i mean that's a that's one of those round round conversations and i know we're all trying to figure out what's category two what's category three but you know i think the bottom line here is what's not category one that's the question i ask if it's not category one then what is it it's well i think there's only i think there's only one category one right and that you know i think that's you know potable water as soon as it hits something i don't you know i don't think uh it, it's it's any longer category one and and we're on the same page right. i mean I, how how you write for that and how you practically apply that to a a, a job is probably a matter of, of professional conscience and experience would be my guess but a lot uh, of times overstep. no but a lot of times category two I, that's a great point but a lot of times category two and three the uh, remedial procedures are either identically the same or they're very, very similar. And, and a lot of times it's more palatable to call it category two rather than having the big fight on category three. And then you kind of pull out the document and, uh, you know, explain, uh, you know, you know, we can cite the standard and, and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I don't, I'm just, I don't know. It, it just seems to me that, I, I think I'm just old school in terms of. Uh, uh, You're just you old. Know, 
I think I'm older than you, but that's all. <laughs> I think you sort of answered um, a question we have in the chat, and, and that does water classification actually make any difference in what is needed on a project? The answer is yes, it does. And what the standard? Well, if you follow if you the follow standard, you're going to be concerned about absorptive materials that have come in contact with category two or especially category three water. So, you know, I think the question is, does it make a difference? Well, yeah, it makes a difference if you follow the standard. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I think it makes a, a difference on the material as well. Like, you know, we know drywall is absorbent, but if it's running down the painted side of drywall, um, you know, is is it getting through the paint and getting into the gypsum? It it may not be, but um, no, I, I think that I, I don't know. I I think it all comes back to what Marty King used to say all the time, and it depends. And, and I think every situation is a little bit different. And um, you know, I, I think that I would base my opinion on you know that specific situation and you know the parameters surrounding it. And I suspect that you do the same thing, Ken. I do. That's absolutely true. Let's go to the roundup, John. All right. The roundup brought to us by this week, Tramex Moisture Meters. Welcome on board, Tramex, and also EIA, the Environmental Information Association. Before we go, um, I got one more Folks, I got another text from Ed Light here. Folks developing the standard didn't realize that pathogens are inactivated when dry. That's an interesting take on it. Cliff? I'm not sure all of them are. It would seem like anthrax, uh, uh, particularly weaponized anthrax, uh, uh, you know. But um, Ed's a pretty sharp guy, so I generally do agree with him. There was another comment about ATP not... Uh, measuring pathogens only, only bio load. I did have one other question, and I, I guess how do you bill for this, Ken? I mean, do you have yeah. different levels of do you have different levels of people within the company that do different tasks and you know are billable at at different rates or just you know, I don't need to know what the rates are. I just want to know how you do it. Sure. That's a great question, uh, Cliff. So we do have a published price list and uh, everyone in the company's got a function. You know, there's a uh, senior analysts, there's a uh, admins, uh, there's just people that perform the functions like any other company. So we have a rate for each one of them and we charge that rate according to the time that we either spend or anticipate to spend on the project. And then we have a rate for our samples uh, that are necessary. So uh, that's how we build that. Yeah, before we go, what's the status right now on this project? Uh, it's on hold. Um, we're waiting on the insurance uh, to uh, make decisions, and we're going to see what happens. Um, it's it's hard to be hard on these people sometimes. I I, I want to just say this. I understand that the insurance companies have a hard job too. And a lot of these assessors that are on the insurance side they're they're out here trying to do their very best. And so when you have a storm of this magnitude, 
Um, you're going to expect that they're, they're going to be ragged and tired like we are, that they're not always going to make the right call. But uh, when you have a project like this that's waited for so long, uh, it makes you wonder uh, why. We'll just leave it at that. And are they still able to pretty much hold their services and use the building? You said it was a food bank. I mean, are, are operations ongoing? So they have a, a tent set up in their six-acre parking lot that they have services in. And um, they do use the building for you know limited things, but um, they certainly can't use it the way it's intended. So for the most part, it's pretty much they can't use their building. Uh, well, I mean, they they can't use it the way it's intended. Let's put it that way. So, okay. and uh, that's just one of those things. And so it's unfortunate. I, I hate to see, especially a church that serves a community. I hate to see them treated this way. It, it, it upsets me, but you know, it's part of the process. So that's why we're here. On the other hand, we when we talked earlier, you didn't seem to have uh, any animus animosity toward the, uh, the insurance carrier. They're just doing their job, I guess, or. Well, uh, yeah, they're just, they have a job to do and so do we, right? So our job, at least on our side, is to identify and document damage to buildings. Their job is, just to be frank, is, in my opinion, is to minimize the cost to the shareholders. Uh, doing that in a judicious and reasonable way is admirable. Doing that in a way that hurts their uh, clients, their uh, insurance policyholders is not admirable. Cliff, do you have any final thoughts or questions? No, I think they're. I, I think their job is to pay the claim. You know, <laughs> you know, it's and that's all there is to it. And you know, if, if they had, and I think to pay the claim it, with a single standard, Ken. You know, it, it's like if it was their building, would they look at it any different or pay any different? You know, I think they should. You know, be colorblind uh, and just treat everyone. Uh, the same way, but a lot of times that doesn't happen. And a lot of times the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, the, the more miserable demanding and, and aggressive that the client is, the more money they get in a lot of cases. So, yeah. It's unfortunate. Right. Ken, uh, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Get ready. Here comes another season folks. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping you guys like you very busy, huh? What I, I think I saw it wasn't supposed to be a real bad season. Not that they can predict that real well, but uh, it was. That, is that accurate? Well, that's what they said about Hurricane Michael too. It's, it's just going to be a Category One. So, um, you know, I love the guys that do that. Sometimes I jokingly call them weather liars because <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they know what the truth is e- anymore, but. Um, We'll see. We'll see, Joe. All right. Ken Siders, thanks so much for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. It's been a very interesting week. I I want to also thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our sponsors and growing audience, we all appreciate all of you coming in. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.